come to our last portion here for our time in the book of Ruth this morning. And as you see on the screen before us, how the book has moved from tragedy to triumph. That is, it was just read for you, is the birth of a son to Naomi. So as you consider the movement of the entire book at kind of a uh, a large or macro level, you see the movement from the death of family at the beginning and a point of despair to where it's hemmed in at the end with the birth of family or the birth of a son. So the loss of family, yet through gracious providence to the provision of family at the end of the book, that's how the book is structured. And each one of the individuals that we have tracked through the story of Ruth have been those characters that each has faced significant challenges from beginning to end. Each character has been forced to make difficult decisions, and yet each one has experienced the mercy of God in that difficult and oftentimes mysterious providence, moving from tragedy to triumph. John Owen mentions it this way, to each of us this morning, he says, quote, such for the most part are all the exercises and trials of the children of God. Their entrance may be a storm, but their close is a calm. This is what we will see with each one of our characters as we wind down or summarize each one of them according to the providence of God at the end of the book of Ruth. Each one journeying through, passing through storm, and yet we watch them as providence in the book closes, ending in a calm. This morning I simply want to do that with you is summarize Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, which I think is what the last chapter is truly providing us, a summary to our narrative story, kind of the last scene, if you will, of how they're going to ride off into the sunset. The first one, that I, the first character I wish to summarize in our time this morning out of chapter 4 is the man Boaz. We have tracked him throughout the story as he came into our narrative in chapter 2, and now we are going to summarize his story character in chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, I will read chapter, se- uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 7. You have to pardon my slips. It's been two weeks since I've been behind the wheel here. So now I'm making slips. Verse 7, that is not chapter 7, verse 7 through 10, as we summarize Boaz. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So giving us this cultural note of the exchange between Boaz and this unnamed redeemer of which we looked at a few weeks ago. Verse 8. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, so you gather the scene is larger than just Boaz, the unnamed redeemer, and the elders. Now you're seeing a community is gathered. A group of individuals are present, 
And you see that also in the blessing. Furthermore, in verse 9, he drew off, he said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belong to Limelech and all that belong to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The summary of Boaz I would provide for you in this brief scene as we're winding down each of our characters in this last scene with Boaz is this, if I could say it in a simple statement. Boaz is a man of great blessing. That is our summary of Boaz through the narrative story of Ruth. In reading this little account of his exchange here, in the exchange for Ruth and Naomi, the provisions for Elimelech in perpetuating the name of the dead, simply considered Boaz is a man in this final scene. And this is what we take away in our summary with him as we reflect ourselves in this own narrative story. Boaz is a man who puts the glory of God above his own personal ambition. That is the summary of our character. We, we, have, we have been introduced to him in chapter 2. From chapter 2, we have traced him through chapter 2 and chapter 3, and here in this summary of chapter 4. And again and again, we would suggest, as the text makes clear, Boaz is a man who puts the glory of God above all of his own ambitions. Now, as I say a broad brush stroke in that statement, let me offer you, by way of rehearsal, two particulars that we recall that demonstrate very concretely that indeed this is who Boaz is and is written for our encouragement and instruction. Particularly speaking, that is, Boaz is such a man for he won submits to the word of the Lord in all things. This is the statement we were introduced to in chapter 2. You recall, Naomi and Ruth are coming back to Bethlehem at the close of chapter 1. And into chapter 2, Ruth says to Naomi, I will go in and I will seek in a field a worthy individual. This is the language of the beginning of chapter 2. They are seeking a lawful man in whose field she can begin gleaning and provide for herself and for Naomi. This worthy man is a man who is described as one who loves the law of the Lord or one who reads and abides by the law. It is one who would know his field isn't simply for self-consumption, but has been given him as indeed a provision for himself, but also a provision for others. That is, as we look at Boaz, this man who in all things considered puts the glory of God above his own ambition, views even his possession of a field as a gift from the Lord, which is not for himself alone, but is also for others. Consider furthermore, particularly speaking, Boaz as a man of great blessing. He resists 
in every opportunity he has to manipulate life's circumstances, which is a, a challenge for all of us facing a tricky providence, a difficult set of circumstances, a conundrum of sorts, to begin to hastily rush around and manipulate all that are involved in all of the leveraging to promote ourselves in the outcome so that when the dust does settle, we achieved what we wanted to achieve. We got what we had intended to get. But this is not who Boaz is at all, which is directly tied to his being a man of great blessing. He resists again and again the temptation to manipulate. If I could provide you a particular even to that, that we recall throughout the book, that informs our understanding that indeed Boaz is blessed because of his resistance to the temptation to manipulate the facts. Recall, Ruth comes to Boaz and tells him of her situation, her present circumstances, and she asks him to marry her. You recall, there on the threshing floor, she speaks to him of circumstance, asks of him to redeem her, informs him of his status as a redeemer. You can act here. And we'd expect there when we realize that Boaz does care for Ruth deeply. He sees uh, from all accounts that we can put together, he's attracted to Ruth. He blesses her earlier in the text for even coming to him and, and not seeking a younger man. He's attracted to Ruth. He desires to be with her. And he's aware of the historical situation that would enable him to do so. So we could hardly step back at the situation where Ruth and Boaz are having the discussion on the threshing floor in chapter 3 and think, well, Boaz just mentions the Redeemer who is before him lawfully because he doesn't have any skin in the game. He's not vested in the outcome. You have to understand my situations in life. I really wanted to see something happen. That's why I had to manipulate the circumstances. You understand. You do the same. We all do it when we really care. But this is a, what we see in Boaz, is that he did have skin in the game, so to speak. He did desire to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And yet, again, I've already kind of given it away that speaks of his resistance to manipulate. He speaks of a mirror redeemer lawfully. He lets her know, I am a redeemer. And he blesses her. And communicates his affection for her. And yet, he redirects her to the law of the Lord. He doesn't just respond on impulse. Let his intended outcomes that are driven by self overcome his obedience to the Lord. He speaks, there is a nearer redeemer than I. Then a second portion, if I could point out how he resists yet again to come through at the end as the story winds down and we see him ride off into the narrative sunset. We see him summarize as this man of great blessing. Because you recall, then he sets up a meeting with the nearer redeemer 
And he invites the elders to do things above board. It wasn't going to be a backyard deal. It wasn't going to manipulate either the new redeemer or the unnamed redeemer showing up and to leverage the situation or to manipulate and then say, oh, no, he told me this and get into a he said, he said this situation kind of thing. He invites the above board context, sets the layout, invites the elders, and the unnamed redeemer comes by and Boaz informs him, you're the nearer redeemer in this situation. And you recall how he described the situation. It was very pleasant. It was very... I'm losing my term, so I'll just say he promoted it well. As he presented the facts on the ground, he didn't manipulate. Recall, the land is provisionary. There, there's a land place for you. You can inherit it. You're going to get the land. It belongs to Elimelech. You'll have it for an inheritance, and so on and so forth. Instead of saying, hey, you know you don't want that plot of land, because, again, as we spoke earlier, the rain never eventually, you know, the rain clouds, I've seen it. They approach like they're going to bless the land, but they go around that particular field. I swear it. You don't want it. It's barren. I know it seems to have a harvest now, but it won't ever again. Trust me. And leverage, leverage. Well, it, you could maybe get it, but it's really far walk. I mean, you're not going to want to be up there. Think about how hot it's going to be. And then you're going to send your guys all the way up there? Come on. I, I, in fact, but I'm a little bit closer. And, 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 you know, rather he doesn't. He presents the facts on the ground. Why? Because he's entrusted all things to the Lord. He doesn't perceive himself to be wiser than the Lord. Does he have skin in the game and desire an outcome? Yes, of course. Does it lead him to manipulate, be a calculative person? No, it doesn't. Boaz is a man of great blessing. And some, if I were to kind of put together the fact, A, that he submits to the word of the Lord, not in some things or convenient things, but in all things. And we see it displayed through his hesitancy or his absolute resistance at opportunity to manipulate. He resists, I would simply say it this way, Boaz does not sinfully seek self-preservation at all costs. Oh, the temptation that lies there to do so is human. And it's sinful. But then there's a question that I posed to you before when we walked through some of those texts. I briefly rehearsed them for you. Is this question that kind of stands out from the narrator's perspective to each one of us as we look at the text, read the text, or hear the text preached? This question is begging to be asked. And it is it's Boaz's response, one, of obedience to the word of the Lord, and two, to submit to the Lord and resist manipulating circumstance and others unique among the people of God. Is it? He's writing the story to frame such a question in your mind. So you don't walk away and say, Wow. Boaz is really something, isn't he? I'm off to manipulate. Oh, no, 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 whoa, 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 no, wait, no, reread. 
reread, reread. There's a question here for you. Is that the sum of the total? That, that Boaz is amazing? Or is Boaz a believer? Of which you share in belief in Christ. And therefore you also submit to the word of the Lord in all things. Entrust yourself to him at every pass and in difficult situations. The mode of operation isn't instinctually to manipulate everyone around you in order to gain what you have invested. Is Boaz all that unique? I guess the response for me, the answer for me is, he shouldn't be. Herman Bavink makes this mention, summarizing here, the Christians, and I, I want to pause there simply as I read, for your sake, as a broad term, defining those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, not just like a, a, a few of us, but the people of God gathered on Lord's Day. He writes to all of us. The Christian's moral life has faith as its root. The law as its rule. And the glory of God as its goal. We hear that and we think, oh yeah, Boaz isn't supposed to be that unique. You see, if I could push just a bit further for Boaz, wealth, again, a wealthy landowner, I can't Re-preach, all the texts will be here forever. For Boaz, wealth, influence, and the benefits that it brought to him were just parts of his life. Let me reread. For Boaz, wealth, influence, and the benefits that it brought to him were just parts of his life. As far as the narrative is leading us to believe, as we are privy to simply this amount of information regarding him, and we see it in play in the word of the Lord, never did those parts cross over into being considered the essence of his life. For Boaz, they were parts. They were never the essence of his life. What does this mean? I hit you with a heavy therefore. Therefore, he was free to risk them, to spend them, and even to lose them for the sake of Christ. It's immediately a challenge to each of us. Consider just briefly. I ask you to consider with me as we peer into the summary of Boaz. How often. Consider how often your own insecurities drive you.
to control those around you and to manipulate your circumstances. Again, for Boaz, they're parts of his life. They don't drive or control. They're not the sum total of my identity. Therefore, in all of them, whether it be my wealth, whether it be my influence, whether it be all of the benefits that are attending from them to me, all of it, I am free from its binding relationship. I am free since it's part and not the essence of. It isn't confused with my identity as a person, how others perceive me, or the influence I have over them, or the money that I have in my account, or the housing and how stable it is. I am free from each of them to risk them, spend them, and even to lose them for the sake of Christ. Because they are not the essence or some total of who I am. This is Boaz. If there is a moment in your identity, right now you're thinking through, am I bound in identity? To my thoughts on wealth. Consider the man of great blessing. Consider being a believer. Am I bound. In my own identity. Of how others view me. Am I concerned about the benefits. That my identity will bring me. If I don't manipulate others try to control all the outcomes of my circumstances. If this is the case, we would look at the text, each of us together, and suggest, indeed, call, that by grace, repent of such selfishness. And you say, and what is left afterward? The transforming freedom of the gospel. Where identity is bound up and secured in Christ. Not in things being confused for essence of identity. There are two aspects in the text that confirm this blessed standing of Boaz. As the story winds down in the summary of this man, Boaz, there are two additional aspects that confirm He is indeed a man of great blessing expressed here in the text. And that is, one, the blessing of the elders, uh, how they bless him. Look at the text, if you would, of the blessing that flows from this selfless act on behalf of Boaz. In verse 10, again, he speaks of redeeming um, Ruth to be his wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in the inheritance. Again, he is not self-seeking in the inheritance. He is perpetuating lawfully the inheritance of the dead in what he's doing. In other words, it's a sacrificial endeavor. And it is for the sake of another, you notice there at the end of verse 10 also, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gate of his native place. I'm doing this for that. He then speaks to them. You are witnesses this day to what was being done. Verse 11, look at as they respond. The community gathered, watching Boaz and his interaction with the unnamed redeemer. The one who failed to redeem. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate. And all the elders said, we are witnesses. And what they they mean by that is look at this blessing. In other words, we're not simply here and we're watching. 
indeed we are witnesses. We see what's being done here. Because look at what is the further response. Simply not standing and giving account. You're right, we were here, jot it down. Everyone who's here, do we have a forum? Yeah, we're all here. All right, everybody state your name and make your mark so they can enter into the legal ledger. ledger. No, it's more than that. They stand and give account. We are witnesses. And look at the rest of the statement that comes from the community who witnessed what who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. The further it built up the house of Israel. May she be like that to you, Boaz. May you act worthily in the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's number one. They witness in Boaz, in this blessing of the building up of the house of offspring. They are so invigorated with what they see in Think about their context just for a moment as you consider their blessing upon him of the royal character. Think about the impact of one small little family in the days of their houses in ruins. This small little family who is fit for royal offspring. The second portion that is a man fit for royal offspring and she, they announce is a woman fit for. You see that in the brief comment here as they say, may she become, may this woman, as they bless matriarchal status in Israel. That's a significant by faith. I think throughout the passages of the book, but you recall one large piece to remember is also recognize in the book, do not underestimate the effect you our lives are interconnected around us it's wise to not overstate evidence that she was experiencing in chapter one and the effect that her attitude into Orpah and Naomi's response to tragedy and the way that she spoke let's go back to Bethlehem And Naomi insisted in the effect it had upon Orpah. And then here in the reversal, we see Boaz and the decision he made to redeem invigorates the elders and the witnesses of such a transaction. It fires them from you, the house of Israel. Are you really that encouraged? Yes. Look of redeeming Naomi. Ruth and perpetuating the name of a for worse. In summary, if I could summarize finally, the man Boaz is a man of great. Those who could not redeem themselves and make provision, he is a man of great blessing as a prefigure to the lesson. The summary of Ruth as we see Boaz winding down his time in the narrative story and the circle of Ruth's moment here of summary. Is that Ruth, number two, Ruth, is at rest. How so, if you look at the comment here in verse 10 of that chapter 4 that we to be my wife. Now, I highlight for you that Ruth now be in the house of her husband. Why is that so significant here for Ruth being a woman 
truly at rest. Because you remember at the beginning of portions of the narrative in chapter 1, Naomi, as she is moving back to Bethlehem, she tells the two young women who are with her, don't follow me. Stop. Go back. And do you remember what she encouraged them to do? Find rest and the house of your husband's. You're not going to come with me and find the rest that I would even desire for you. Look at me. I have no rest. For you to come with me is not going to be rest-filled. It's going to be a burden. Particularly, you are going to be a burden to me, i got a sense. So please, don't come. But also, to you, find rest in the house of your husbands. Orpah sitting there. Man, this embittered. Lady is really having an effect upon me. Maybe she's right. Maybe I ought to heed her advice. Look, you should. Yes, I can tell I'm getting somewhere with you, Orpa. I can tell. I see it in your eyes. You're tracking what I'm saying. Seek a husband. Stay here in the land of polytheism. Don't come back to me with covenant people. Don't do that. Find a husband. That is, in this culture, the stabilizing feature of the home. Find the husband that you need. Let him be a Moabite. Let him be anybody. Let, just, hey, find a husband. Look at me. I'm without. What hope do I have? You're young. You still bear children. Go find a husband. Repeating that rest feature. I want this for you. Ruth, on the other hand, sitting there, and you can conceive, at the point of crossroads, Ruth is saying, I'm coming to Bethlehem. Ruth, I'm not getting anywhere with you. Listen. What I'm saying to you, I'm burdened. You're going to further burden me. You're going to be burdened. Find rest. Do you remember? Ruth found rest in that very same episode. No, to Naomi's charge, no, she didn't. Ruth, you're not. Getting it. Find rest in a husband. And if you would, just if your Bible's open, flip over to chapter 1 just so I can show you Ruth's rest that she found in all of the chaos and all of the non evangelism that was going on with Orpah er, and Naomi. Really not seeking to convert and draw back to the covenant people, but push away. What was the end game? There it is, verse 14 of chapter 1. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And at this crossroad moment, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. You're right. I love you. Good luck. I need a husband. I need rest. But the contrast emerging in the young Ruth was Ruth clung to her. A kiss goodbye and a cling to the cloak. I'm going. Verse uh, 15. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return. Get away. Go after your sister-in-law. Catch up. And Ruth found rest right then and there. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And here is the essence of Ruth's rest. Your people 
shall be my people. And your God, my God. Now, one will say, is that her point of conversion? Is that Ruth's rest? In direct contrast from finding the rest in the house of a person, another human being, thinking, that will solve my problems. It will be, this relationship will be my ultimate provision. If I could just find this spouse, I'll finally be at rest. Ruth, she says to each of us, no, you won't. No, you won't. We know that that's the case with Ruth because this is specifically what Boaz blesses about Ruth when he says, I heard about your way to Bethlehem. Look over in chapter 2 where we see Boaz sees what we're seeing. Maybe, perhaps, rightly so. That's why we're seeing it as it's recorded. Chapter 2, as he speaks to Ruth, Verse 10, the worthy man says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. He knows all of the facts. He knows the surrounding situation. He heard about what even took place prior to the death or or, or the incident in Bethlehem. Verse 12. This is his pronouncement that unites. That was her moment of conversion. Verse 12. The Lord repay you, Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's the moment of conversion. This is the language of conversion. That Boaz is blessing to Ruth. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, far above, far above, finding rest. In the house of a husband. Ruth found rest in God. Yet Naomi. All the while. Did not understand. Ruth's rest in the gospel. Fine. If you're going to come, come. But just be quiet the rest of the trip. She didn't perceive. Oh, Ruth was already at rest going to Bethlehem. We know that Naomi didn't perceive it, for even then when they arrived at Bethlehem, The first words that were ever a word of encouragement to the young Moabitess who was in a land as a foreigner, doing the work in a foreign field for Naomi and herself, she received, as far as the text indicates, zero encouragement from Naomi. Not a word. The first word of encouragement, no wonder she fell right on her face, was the word of Boaz to her. Ruth didn't need to be affirmed by Naomi. She had her identity in the gospel. 
I am loved of the Lord. I don't need you to affirm me, Naomi. It freed Ruth to minister to Naomi because she didn't need Naomi to constantly affirm her. She was driving her identity from Naomi. Is this good enough, Naomi? I brought back five barley loaves. What, do you, what say you, Naomi, that I might be invigorated to my identity? She worked. Naomi was embittered. And Ruth worked. And she was deeply at rest. I don't want to make too much of the comment here in some summarization of... Um, what we have here as far as a husband and a wife is concerned. But I do think I would be amiss knowing our congregation and providence among us. I would be amiss, I feel, not to mention, however, the word that is here for each of us regarding relationships and their status. Each of us, whether married or seeking marriage, must ground our confidence Ground our identities in Christ alone. Whether married or yet to be or unknown if will be. Identity is to be grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not bound up in being married. Not bound up into whom you are married to, but being free in marriage to serve the one married to, and free to serve, looking forward to the day perhaps of marriage to someone. Being free for your identity is not bound up in that happening or not happening, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is to whom your identity belongs and is derived and is empowered. What Naomi missed is that Ruth heard in the gospel a deeper level of rest than what a husband can provide. This is exactly what the gospel does provide. You recall Christ saying it to you like this. And this is what Ruth heard. Come to me, the Lord says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. It's provisionary. Come, I'll give it. Don't look elsewhere. Don't look in your labor. Don't look in your burden for rest. Come to me. I'll give it. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Hear me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will give you rest. You will find. He says, in coming, you will find rest 
for your souls. Ruth said, I believe that to be true. And rest is what she found. For he is, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, a rewarder of those who seek him. How is such rest possible, you ask? It is this way that Christ can make such a call to you to come and a full promise of provisions when you come along. How can I be assured that in him I'll find rest? Because on the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from the Lord, from God. So that with a lasting result, we can find deep rest in knowing that our sins are forgiven and that he loves us to the uttermost. I make one last question to you before we summarize just much more briefly, Naomi, and that is, are you this morning at rest in the gospel? Do you find Christ to be provisionary? Have you received of him and are you currently resting in him and all that he provides? Is your identity woefully bound to life's part? How good they go is how full you feel. How bad they go is how empty you get. Christ has come to me. I'll give you rest. Finally, the last portion is Naomi for our time this morning and our time in the book of Ruth. And that is, if I could summarize just briefly, Naomi here who really is the center oftentimes of the story as we see uh, as we follow her responses to God's providence here at the end Naomi is a woman uh, maybe you would write this down yourself and uh, guess this quite clearly but Naomi is a woman full of family you remember she comes back at the end of uh, uh, Bethlehem and she says you know I've come back with nothing and we know that it wasn't speaking of food because she left or with Elimelech because there was no food. She's not complaining about her pantry. She is complaining about her providence. I have come back empty. I left full. I had a husband and two sons. They got married while we were there in Moab. And they're dead. And so is my husband. I have nothing. Except this Moabite that keeps following me. Her name is Ruth. And here at the close of Providence, moving from tragedy to triumph, Naomi is full again, full of family. Listen to how the text reads, if you look at it with me, of, of verses um, 13 through 17 there of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Again, a brief comment there. We're not sure why Ruth didn't have children with uh, uh, which one she was married to, Malon, I believe. I forget. Um, but for 10 years of marriage, they didn't have a child. The elders pronounced, the Lord is doing something here. I think that is confirmation, verse 13. Indeed, the Lord is doing something here, which ends with doing something magnificent in the birth of a king. The Lord sovereignly gave to Ruth conception. 
and she bore a son. But notice how the center focuses. Then the women said to Naomi. See how Naomi emerges. What about Ruth? It's her son. She's excited. Boaz is excited. Congratulate. No, look at Naomi. Rises in this narrative story for our sake to see what God is doing. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you. Naomi, you see what he's done for you in the birth of this baby. He has not left you, Naomi, this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. Oh, that's to say the least of it coming to David. Verse 15, he shall be to you, Naomi, you, not Ruth, to you, Naomi, a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. You're not going to die alone, Naomi. The Lord is at work here to bless you in your darkness of providence. You, Naomi, he's going to restore you. He's going to nourish you. He'll care for you. Naomi, we are so happy for you. Now, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, Naomi, do you see she loves you? You're cared for. You are so sad, so broken, so devastated. We were saddened for you, Naomi. But your daughter-in-law loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. It was a good idea, Naomi, to let Ruth come along. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Oh, Grandma was very pleased. Verse 17. Gave him a name saying, a son has been born. Guess who? They named him Obed, which means one who serves. Again, the comment further about restoring and nourishing indeed to be renowned in Bethlehem. He's the father of Jesse. You all know who he is, right? And the reader would say, oh yeah, absolutely. He was the encouraged. For as we look upon Naomi, we see that the deep hurt, which must pause and be appreciated, the deep hurt of what the community even witnessed in Naomi. And you notice how they bore her burden? Oh, they were pulling for Naomi. They were so happy for her, which means they bore her burden in return. They felt for her first. The deep hurt and the anguish of spirit brought about, and this is what I want to encourage each of us this morning with as we look upon Naomi. It brought, it wasn't apart from the hurt. It wasn't in a different way than the anguish of spirit. It was by means of deep hurt and anguish of spirit that brought about a spiritual growth for Naomi that was otherwise not possible. John Owen, once last comment here, states it this way. As we look upon Naomi, so is a soul surprised when God opens himself and his grace in a promise unto him. This soul cries out, God is here. And I knew it not. He was here all the while. 
in my tragedy. You mean he led me there? You mean when I felt like he wasn't present or hearing, he was? You mean when I felt like it was absolutely over and I had no one to turn to, you mean he was there? Yes, he was. Just because perhaps we don't see it, feel it, concretely, immeasurably, in something physical that our senses demand. By faith we know God is there. Even if we know it not. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time in the book of Ruth.